Yeah, so um, I've been, not so much in recent years, but in, in the late 80s uh, and through the 90s and 2000s, uh, I was involved with sort of various blockades and environmental groups. Uh, I was involved with the Campaign to Save Native Forests in Western Australia in the late 80s, early 90s, and uh, Rainforest Action Group and various other things. So I had been involved with various blockades and um, done research about, I guess, history of various Australian radical and social change movements in general. So I became interested in, I guess, how blockades became a kind of a strategy and, and, and I suppose a form of tactics that activists could turn to um, because obviously these you know things don't come out of uh, nowhere and so I was interested in what, what were the roots of blockading and I guess also I was interested in where tactics came from so things like um, you know, tree sitting on lock-ons and stuff. I'd heard various stories from people, but um, yeah, so that was sort of the genesis for it was trying to find out, yeah, how how this kind of became uh, a thing. You know, that that you know, when faced with environmental destruction, people uh, could turn to, and how the body of tactics around it, and I guess approaches to how to do it and what was the best way to do it and what was the ethical way to do it and that kind of thing came about. Um, no. So I carried out the research as part of a PhD thesis uh, and, um, you know, I was uh, lucky and blessed or what have you to have a whole lot of people uh, who were, were open to being interviewed about it and um, there were some collections I was able to come across. Um, there's a collection in the State Library of New South Wales called the Rainbow Collection, which always makes me think of the Rainbow Connection. <laughs> but um, there's about uh, 40 or 50 boxes there of all sorts of different stuff from northern New South Wales, kind of alternative rainbow region. And, and there was a whole load of campaigns, um, materials that I discovered in there and, and some campaigns um, that I wasn't so much aware of and, you know, kind of hopefully have brought to life the sort of their importance. And I guess mm. the other part of it was trying to explore, a, you know, what are, what are the continuities and what were the sort of lessons and things that we could be carried forward from earlier periods. Now, on that, I guess one thing that unfortunately um, I at least have witnessed over you know my last couple of decades of involvement with activism is that perhaps activists aren't so great at sharing intergenerational knowledge, and maybe that is that is changing now. But was that also, I guess, a, a, a you know a motivating factor for you? Is that Unfortunately, what tends to happen in these kind of communities is that people come in and they t typically sort of, you know, maybe spend a decade or two involved in, in social movements, but inevitably they either burn out or they move on with their lives and then a new generation of activists come along. And often it seems as though people are having to reinvent the wheel to some extent. Do you hope that the book serves, uh, I guess, some purpose in terms of addressing that and at least uh, passing on some of the, the lessons learned by the blockades from the 80s onwards? 
Yeah, well, definitely. You've encapsulated it very well. I mean, I originally got into... I mean, I've always been a bit of a history buff, but I got into writing about um, radical history and particularly Australian history precisely to over try and help overcome that. Um, not just, I guess, to... Uh, even though you know, it's very important itself to, to sort of show people, you know, this is what other people have been through and maybe, you know, you need to consider these things. Um, but but also to give, I guess, people a sense that they're part of a tradition, you know, and, and that um, often, you know, activism can, depending on the issue you're working on or whatever, can feel quite lonely and quite isolated and you know why is it all worth it or whatever and um so i guess looking at the reasons that other people have had in the past can sort of help inspire people but also to show that you can have you know issues that are very unpopular at at one point but it sort of takes somebody to get the ball rolling and you know depending on sort of mixture of strategy and intuition and and uh, the right conditions or whatever you, you know you can go from being very isolated to, to to really making change so I wanted to get that across and yeah just to give you know and, and I suppose there's also whilst on the one hand you often do have people reinventing the wheel or you know having to come up with things from scratch on the other hand you often have um, you know, you may have certain uh, organisations or activists or whatever who are really prescriptive and will say, you know, this is how we did it in this case and therefore that, that that's going to hold true forever. So we must always apply these tactics and we must always apply these approaches to, to you know, what's kind of behaviour is acceptable or what kind of tactics are acceptable. And so it's been important to me to kind of show that yeah, there's a whole range of things can work in different mm. contexts. Um, and that, um, yeah, generally I think being very prescriptive is not the way to go. And on that, Ian, I guess, you know, one of the, the problems I think uh, that many uh, sort of protest movements, social movements face is very much that, that they tend to fall into patterns of repetition in terms of, you know, I guess many of our listeners and yourself would be aware that, you know, a protest march now has almost been reduced almost to some kind of spectacle in the sense that people tend to repeat the same uh, formula again and again. Uh, looking at this research, I mean, you started in, in with uh, some of the campaigns here in Australia. Australia, uh, I believe one of the campaigns, the uh, Tarania Creek campaign, and then moved Tarania uh, Creek. Creek, and then moved, uh, you know, through Australia, and then eventually into the United States and, and Canada. I guess it was one of the things you were looking at a, a, a sort of critical reflection on what worked and what was effective. And can, I guess can you talk to that, and in, in terms of you know this question of not repeating the same mistakes or just repeating the same actions for the sake of them, it, it, was that part of the book? And you know actually analysing what worked, what didn't work, what was uh, effective and, you know, and what that might uh, demonstrate to today's uh, environmentalists and activists? Yeah, I mean, there is um, definitely analysis in there of, of, I suppose, outcomes. Part of those outcomes are, are what the different campaigns set out to achieve at the beginning, but I also kind of explore, I guess, other outcomes in terms of 
you know, people coming up with ways of doing things and then how did they get shared? Because um, this was a period, uh, you know, I sort of start in 79 and I go through to 1990, so for the most part very little uh, involvement of the internet and so forth. So, you know, very different ways of sharing knowledge and stuff at that time. Um, so, yeah, the book does focus, uh, the majority of the book focuses on Australia uh, the US and Canada and the reason that was was I, I sort of did a pretty broad kind of search through various um, mainstream newspapers, activist media, um, you know, uh, boxes of flyers and so forth uh, to try and put together as complete a picture as, as I felt I could of, of all the different blockades uh, that happened up until 1997, and I sort of chose 97 as a as a kind of stop-off point for that search because that was the year in which um, a couple of protest uh, manuals, one by US Earth First and one by uh, anti-roads activists in the UK, came out. And a couple of years before that, um, the I think it's the Intergalactic Deluxe Guide to Blockading um, was put out by activists in, in northern New South Wales. So that was a sort of a point at which, I guess, you know, how to, how to use tactics and how to um, approach organising blockades kind of became codified a bit, you know, like you had a manual that you could send to people. It wasn't just about, um, you know, talking to people or going to visit their campaigns or hearing a rumour about something or, or, you know, reading a brief account in, in the Earth First Journal or something and then trying to work out, oh, how do we, how do we you know, put a platform up in a tree or whatever. So um, I kind of made 97 that cut-off point. Um, and when I looked at the hundreds of kind of blockades that happened all over the world during that time, it sort of became clear that um, the first three countries where blockading kind of became um, a, a, a sort of ongoing strategic option was, was Australia and Canada and the US. There were, there were big blockading campaigns in Malaysia and Brazil, but they were very much sort of um, confined to one region. And so I was interested in this kind of national picture and then, you know, how did it spread around an entire country sort of thing, not just one, and, and spread out to different communities, not, not that it was a, you know, um, tactic or strategy that was just used in one place by one particular community. So out of all that, <laughs> I sort of came to see the Terania Creek campaign in 1979 um, in Terania Creek, northern New South Wales, as a bit of a touchstone event. And other people had... had I wasn't the first person to kind of um, see it in this way. Um, I guess it was a touchstone in that it... Uh, was the first blockade in Australia that that happened in uh, at the point of destruction. So in Western Australia, there'd been an occupation of um, aluminium smelter site earlier in 1979, but but which was ostensibly to protect Jarrah Forest, but it wasn't actually in the forest. So uh, yeah, Terania Creek. 
um, I guess is a good example of people kind of breaking away from the formulas of the time. So they had tried lobbying, and they, you know, which was the main tactic at that time, um, and they tried um, and sort of that hadn't had much success. There wasn't necessarily a lot of interest in the issue of Terrania Creek. So this was a rainforest area. Rainforests um, at that time were not particularly prized um, uh, by, by governments, certainly, and, and generally even by the public. Um, and so what happened was, um, you know, the, you basically had an alternative-type hippie community in that area. That was a community that had lots of, I guess, practical skills. Um, it was a community where kind of innovation and creativity were prized. And um, people had vaguely thought about having some kind of, um, you know, picket line or something in the forest, but they hadn't really made a major plan. And then basically logging was imminent um, in 1979, and they called a community meeting uh, after the Shannon Market, which is sort of a big regional hippie market. And sort of out of that, people went, look, why don't, you know, let's set up a, a camp in the forest and, and just get in the way of things. And then <clears throat> over the weeks that followed, they, they um, excuse me, <clears throat> came up with a whole bunch of uh, things that I guess, you know, later became fairly typical parts of blockades. So they mm. occupied roads, they used consensus decision-making that hadn't been used um, so much in sort of campaigns like this before, but within, I guess, these kind of alternative uh, communal um, projects and stuff, people had used forms of consensus, so they used consensus. Uh, they did a basic form of tree-sitting, you know, basically just climbing trees. Um, they flooded roads, um, you know, there were tree spiking occurred, you know, it... it um, and basically this was so novel that on the one hand, um, you know, initially the police and government didn't really know how to respond to it, but it also created a, a huge amount of public interest and uh, basically enough kind of pressure was generated, enough costs around policing and enough kind of political damage that, um, you know, the logging was stopped and uh, the then ALP, New South Wales, ran government, sort of pushed, tried to push it all off into into an inquiry and, you know, um, classic sort of tactic. Um, but, uh, you know, eventually the, that forest was saved and was made part of a big national park. And so, you know, that's an example of rather than people sort of going, OK, well, the lobbying's failed, we can't get support from the mainstream environmental groups because they think we're a bunch of sort of hopeless hippies um, people came up with it with a whole new way of doing things and uh you know we're very successful we're speaking to ian mcintyre who's a new book environmental blockades obstructive direct action and the history of the environmental movement is uh out at the moment. Ian, you mentioned there, uh, I guess, creating a new way of doing things. And while there is a wealth of research into, I guess, social movements and protest movements, often 
at least here in Australia, there isn't so much of a focus on direct action. Obviously, obstructive direct action is a huge focus for you in this book. And you mentioned there that uh, you know activists were engaging in uh, consensus decision-making and, and other forms of uh, what people might refer to as prefigurative organizing, I guess, within these protest camps. Can you talk to the, I guess, the question of direct action and how it differs from what people might refer to as, as protest or even civil disobedience and why it's uh, particularly useful in terms of, I guess, developing uh, activist tools, but also just more broadly in terms of, I guess, uh, potential alternatives that uh, sometimes these protest camps experimented with. Yeah, so I, I use the term obstructive direct action in the book basically because direct action is used to mean so many things. I mean, I suppose in the kind of historical syndicalist, anarchist, left libertarian type tradition, the idea of direct action is to uh, basically directly address and solve a problem uh, or an issue without recourse to authority or to some sort of mediating force like politicians. Now, um, at the same time, direct actions used to describe a whole lot of other things. <laughs> you know, I mean, Tony Abbott used the term for a bit um, <laughs> for his, for when he was trying to get away from a carbon tax. So, um, so yeah, so there's that kind of classic sense of direct action, as I say, as, you know, like we can solve things ourselves without having to uh, use authority. At the same time, direct action is often used to describe, I guess, getting in the way of things. So I use the term obstructive direct action to try and make it clear, a bit clearer what I'm talking about. And I, um, you know, and I guess often the term non-violent direct action is used for a lot of this stuff, but I also wanted in the book to try and get away from some of the very simplistic um, kind of binaries that people have around um, what's non-violent direct action and what isn't. And, and that's, that's a, there's a whole debate that sometimes gets quite hair-splitting and so forth around that. So I wanted to sort of show very clearly that, you know, with direct action here I was talking about an obstructive form in terms of people getting direct, directly in the way of uh, an antisocial activity or a destructive activity. And I guess in terms of forest blockading, um, you know, I would see this obstructive direct action as kind of falling into rough categories. So you've sort of got soft blockades where it's mainly people using their bodies, um, to either climb on something or to stand, you know, occupy a road or occupy a forest or stand in front of, you know, a chainsaw or a bulldozer or, or a dredge if it's um, wrecking a beach or whatever. And then you've sort of got the use of barricades, um, you know, so yeah, piling things up in some form or, or creating a fort or something else. And those, those kind of forms of... Um, obstructive direct action obviously are very, you know, ain't, they go back to ancient times, you know, picket lines and barricades and so forth. Uh, and then I sort of, there's this kind of a third category which is around sort of 
enhanced or manufactured vulnerability. So that's where, I mean, putting your body in the way of something is putting yourself in a situation of vulnerability where, you know, you're trusting that the person driving the bulldozer or the police or whatever are not going to kill you or, or majorly harm you. And so there were a bunch of tactics such as lock-ons, you know, where people use a kryptonite lock or some other kind of lock to lock themselves to a piece of equipment um, or where people, you know, climb up a platform in a tree or create a tripod and get on top of that. And that kind of enhances their vulnerability and makes them even more vulnerable and therefore puts the onus on, you know, the opposition and the police not, not to hurt them. And generally, in countries like Australia, uh, the US and Canada, at times, definitely, um, you know, people were injured and so forth. Um, but often um, the backlash around hurting or killing people uh, was seen as too great, certainly when the media were present. So there was a space to use those kind of tactics, whereas in other countries, you know, people would just be shot or whatever, unfortunately. Um, yeah, and then the other kind of, I suppose, form of obstructive action or direct action that I would see would be, um, yeah, something like, uh, you know, forms of sabotage. So that might be digging up a road or it might be... Um, kind of damaging equipment and that kind of thing usually sabotage i guess the more heavy forms of sabotage are usually kind of a bit separate to blockades because you know because of their illegal nature and the kind of penalties that can be put against them uh, as well as the fact that many blockaders um, don't agree with them um, means that it's usually something that's done by small groups sort of separate to blockades. But some blockades did include forms of forms of sabotage. And uh, going right back to Terrania Creek, because there they, you know, deliberately flooded roads and that sort of thing. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that's one sense of direct action. But the traditional sense of direct action also feeds into this um, for some activists. So not, not for all. I mean... So, for, for many activists who are involved with blockades, um, they're using a form of obstructive direct action to try and force governments or outside parties to get involved and, and pass legislation or, or stop an activity or whatever. Um, for other groups, it is about saying, um, you know, we can do this ourselves. We... we have um, the ability to get in the way of these things and to stop them without having to, uh, you know, go go to politicians or others to stop it. And because um, often the communities and the people who are involved in the early days of this stuff were kind of alternative communities who were looking for ways of living that were different to the mainstream, that were more sustainable, that were more... Um, equal and so forth, that's where something like consensus decision-making, where, you know, the goal is as a group you come to a decision together and everyone's voices are heard rather than kind of relying on voting or having, you know, a small group of people in charge, although sometimes that happens. Um, yeah, there was this sense of trying to create sort of something different. And I guess the other thing is... <laughs> is that often these blockades involved protest camps. 
and these camps were often run on a very and are run on a very kind of egalitarian basis and kind of serve as you know laboratories for innovation as some people have called them because you know with a blockade there's there's moments of of intense action but often there's a lot of waiting around uh you know if you're often a setting up a blockade in itself will will kind of postpone you know the, your opposition will hold off for some months holding hoping that you'll fall apart or go away or whatever and during that time that gives a lot of opportunity for you know people to discuss tactics strategies ways of doing things differently um so yeah there's quite a lot of variety within blockades in terms of their goals um but certainly for some the blending of the kind of obstructive direct action of directly getting in the way and stopping something certainly blends into the wider idea of of direct action and kind of changing society and and, uh, finding new ways of doing things. Now, Ian, obviously this is a historical work and looking very much at uh, blockades from the the 80s and 90s. However, you do finish the book looking uh, forward from 1990 and the development of uh, environmental blockading since then. We now we now live in a world in which the the realities of catastrophic climate change are ever more pressing with the IPCC giving us really less than a decade to uh, avoid catastrophic climate change, even if that is possible in itself. What do you hope people might get from this book in terms of looking at today's uh, climate justice movements and blockading. There are, are of course, still blockades ongoing here in Western Australia and elsewhere around the country, in particular thinking of uh, places such as uh, the, the those that are on the ground in uh, Queensland trying to stop the uh, Adani uh, coal mine from going ahead. What, what do you hope people get from the book in terms of looking forward at uh, potential tactics, especially when considering uh, the issue of climate justice and uh, taking on some of the uh, the fossil fuel companies? Yeah, I think some things that I learnt from, from working on the book and from having, you know, I interviewed around 30 activists who, who are involved in, in, as I said before, what I see is this kind of period where we're Blockading became, um, you know, a strategic option, and and sort of, mo- you know, nearly all of them are still active in in some way, um, and you know, some of them were were involved very early on um, in pointing out, you know, that the dangers of climate change and you know the greenhouse effect as it was more uh, typically referred to in in the eighties. So I guess in terms of what I think people can draw out, well, I think one thing that I certainly picked up from it, you know, and as I talked about earlier, is that there's no specific formula for success. However, (laughs) having, you know, there's a really, it's very important to kind of combine planning, strategy, having metrics, you know, measuring what success is, that kind of thing, and Combining that with some intuition and spontaneity, and that's a tricky tension, um, but it's one that often exists within a lot of campaigns. You know, so some campaigns are, are you know, that certainly probably the most that majority I've been involved with um, are very kind of ad hoc and you know, um, 
and others are extremely planned out and kind of follow uh, you know, a particular plan and then don't divert much from that plan. So, so one of the things that occurred to me, you know, that came out of this for me was, yeah, there's a specific formula, but, you know, if you can look at what's been done in the past, that can help you to kind of think about what's that kind of um, balance between planning and strategy and then allowing for kind of intuition and spontaneity. Um, it really underlines, I think, the importance of new tactics, but Tactics don't have to be entirely new. You can adapt something that's been done before or you can return to old tactics that haven't been used in quite a while or use them in a sort of unexpected way. And, and if you do something that's a bit different, you are more likely to be successful and grab attention. I guess another thing that I would say is that you know, looking at these campaigns, blockading kind of rarely works on its own in terms of a blockade, um, you know, simply being, you know, just being able to get enough people to completely shut down work forever. Um, that, you know, there's often it has to happen with, you know, a kind of broader strategies, which, you know, might involve legal cases and they might involve lobbying, they might involve changing governments, they might involve pushing towards some sort of rebellion against governments. Um, but you know, the, these things don't tend to happen on their own, um, but blockading can enhance all those other strategies and um, in turn, they can, yeah, those other strategies can enhance blockading. So it's, it's a tool. Um, and I think blockading often works best when it is combined with other strategies and where different kinds of activists are open to working together. And they don't have to be closely working together. There were cases um, certainly in the US uh, where, um, you know, uh, activists that were using quite, using quite confrontational sort of legal strategies, they were uh, liaising and essentially working together with, with activists who were doing stuff blockading in the forest, but officially there was kind of, you know, some space between them and stuff. And I think um, another thing that really came out was that to prevent isolation of particular issues and, and health blockaders, it's really important to kind of connect to broader issues and communities. The last thing I should say is that, yeah, blockading, you know, can certainly um, work. It can backfire. Sometimes, you know, using a blockade, there's cases in the book where it really alienated local communities and it really gave an opportunity for... Um, you know, people who wanted to tear down forests or, or destroy beaches or dam rivers, uh, it gave, you know, the blockading kind of was a catalyst that allowed those groups to kind of really get their act together and, um, you know, succeed. But more typically, blockading, you know, can really generate a whole bunch of outcomes and, and that includes things such as stopping and delaying Work, which is the main thing that people often want. I mean, it can um, uh, sort of uh, show how involved, you know, governments which may say that they are neutral, how close they actually are to big business and so forth, because it sort of forces them to get involved by, um, you know, using the police and what have you. Um, blockades can really bring communities together. They can bring... Um, 
you know, Indigenous communities and non-Indigenous communities together. Sometimes they can drive them apart. Um, but, you know, as a form of action, it's one uh, that certainly at the end of the day uh, really flies the flag and really shows, you know, just how committed people are to stopping something and uh, replacing it.